Ephesians 4, starting from verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The next passage comes from Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading starting from verse 1 to 7. Revelation 2, starting from verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, for where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. A big good morning to everyone here this morning. Uh, Great to see everyone. Lots of new faces that I haven't met before. So if I haven't met you yet, uh, I'd love to be able to uh, catch you after the service and say hi to... uh, My name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church along with Ben. Uh, Before we begin, gong si fa sai. Happy Chinese New Year to everyone. I know there's been lots of different celebrations. I've seen all the food photos on Facebook. Uh, A little bit jealous, uh, but I had my own lunch yesterday as well. Um, Got to see my brother and catch up with him. Uh, Flew up from Sydney on Friday evening, so that was great. I hope that uh, over the coming days um, you've been able to catch up or will be able to catch up with your own friends and family too, especially for these students who are here, unable to go back home. Um, we're uh, yeah, hoping that you'll be able to enjoy uh, church family uh, during this particular weekend as well. Uh, let me, uh, quick announcement before we get into it, uh, to this passage and pray. Uh, if you've downloaded the church bulletin and you're going to take sermon uh, uh, notes on the sermon outline, just to note that I'll be spending a little bit more time on point 4A uh, of the application uh, compared to B and C. So if you're taking notes and you're wondering why it's going over time, just a note there. Uh, Keep Revelation chapter 2 open in front of you. We'll be reading through that a bit. And uh, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless us as we look now at his word. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, melt our hearts that we may be animated by your spirit to have ears to hear and respond in faith and repentance. Help us believe this word 
that our love would be clear and your glory be magnified. Amen. This weekend is not only Chinese New Year, but it is also Valentine's Day. Today is Valentine's Day, and whatever the origins of Valentine's Day, and there are multiple uh, kind of different versions of how the day started, it's certainly a day that we presently celebrated by many around this world as a day of love. As someone who loves movies, I also noticed last night in my DVD and Blu-ray collection a collection and a whole heap of stories and movies about love, especially uh, rom-coms, romantic comedies. And I noticed that they all kind of had one thing in common. So here are some of the, my favorite rom-coms of all times. Sleepless in Seattle, which is a classic. Uh, You've Got Mail is my favorite sick day movie. 27 Dresses is Better Than It Looks uh, on the poster. And then you've got older movies like IQ and the newer ones like To All the Boys I Loved Before. And for some reason, Meg Ryan features in three of those movies. Um, if I have lost esteem in your eyes, I apologize and shall repent. But I noticed as I was looking at these movies that all of these movies are about the start of a relationship. Not about the end of a relationship, not about the middle part of a relationship, but about the start of a relationship. And it got me wondering why Hollywood loves these kinds of movies. When you think about the romantic comedies, when you think about romance movies in general, they tend to major on the start of the relationship of a guy and girl getting together. So why does Hollywood love those sorts of movies? And I think the reason why is because Hollywood loves, uh, we love being reminded about what falling in love is like. Now, I mentioned that today not just because it's Valentine's Day, but because our passage here, in our passage today, Jesus tells a church that they have lost their first love, and they need to remember it and to recapture it. They need to be reminded of what it was like to, inverted commas, fall in love. Because if they don't recapture that sense of loving each other, then Jesus will, inverted commas, break up with the church. Not in a rom-com way, but in a much more devastating way. Last week, Ben kicked off this short series in in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 uh, by taking us through chapter 1. And there we saw the revelation of Jesus, the one who rules his church. It was a grand and massive vision of what Jesus is like. And now our attention over the next two chapters is brought by, to a letter, a letter distributed among seven churches. Each church is addressed with the same structure, as you can see here on the screen. First, we meet Jesus, and an image of him is given. Now, that image is drawn from chapter 1 and generally relates to the church being addressed and the issues that, they're be, that are, are going on. Second, Jesus gives an assessment of that church. And as you can see, there are kind of three groups of churches. You've got Ephesus, Pergamum, and Sardis, who are churches addressed uh, and having as some street strengths and weaknesses. You've got Smyrna and Philadelphia, two churches that Jesus has only good things to say about. And then you've got Thyatira and Laodicea at the end, where Jesus has only negative things to say about them. And then Jesus gives some instructions for each church to follow and he gives them some consequences of whether they will obey or disobey him then each church is given a the same refrain he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit says to his churches it's an invitation to hear what jesus has said to them by the holy spirit and a chance for them to show that they are going to respond and then he gives each church a final promise to the one who conquers they will receive a reward so taken as a whole 
if you just look at Revelation 2 and 3 as one big picture, it's got one main point, one main purpose. You can see there on the outline uh, in the bulletin and on the screen here as well. Revelation 2 and 3, its main point and purpose is basically to tell us that Jesus Christ, who rules the church, assesses the church and calls for a response of persevering in what is good or repenting what is bad, promising a reward to those who conquer. Over the next seven weeks, including today, as we look at each church and how they are addressed, the message that they receive is going to be in line with this overall message from Jesus in in chapters 2 and 3. So let's turn to our passage and meet Jesus, who writes to Ephesus. So read with me again in your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now Jesus addresses the angel of the church in Ephesus as the one who holds, as he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now the seven stars, remember from chapter 1, refer to the seven angels of the churches. Seven angels, seven churches. This isn't saying that there is a guardian angel that is standing outside there by the gate at Ryan's Road, ensuring that all only good spiritual beings are able to enter into this building. One of my friends uh, I used to work with um, in the city, uh, she got invited to a wedding at a church and she said to me, I'm actually quite afraid to go. And I said, why? And she said, because I'm afraid that if I step foot in the building, I'll be struck down by lightning. Um, she, she herself not being a believer. So, you know, is there a sense there that there's a guardian angel at the door? And the answer is no. Uh, the number seven in apocalyptic literature is symbolic for wholeness and completion. Seven churches in this letter represent all churches throughout history. Seven angels with the churches is a way of saying that every church has a heavenly connection. A connection to Jesus who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the lampstands representative of each church, again from chapter 1. So right at the start here, Jesus is introducing himself as the one who is in the middle of his church. He is present in his church as it gathers, and he knows what is happening. He is the one who knows all that is going on. Sometimes in church it may feel like nobody notices us, nobody notices the service that we give to others, but take heart, be encouraged, because Jesus knows. Next we meet Ephesus. Ephesus was an important city in the Roman Empire. It was at the center of some very important trade routes and was quite a wealthy place. It was most famous for a massive temple to the goddess Artemis. The Apostle Paul planted this church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and he stayed with it for about three and a half years, teaching them the word, teaching them the gospel. And then he eventually left in a teary farewell in Acts chapter 20. Timothy was later appointed to be the pastor and elder of the church towards the end of Paul's life. And by the time that they received this letter, uh, Ephesus, the church, may have been around 40 years old at that point. Roughly the same point, roughly the same age as SLE Church right now. Now in verses 2 and 3, we find out Jesus' positive assessment of them at this time. So have a look again at verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. This was a church that was going pretty well doctrinally. 
their understanding and defense of the gospel was good. There was hard, the hard work of, and patient endurance going on in the church. They were keeping their heads down and getting the job done, and especially when it came to testing false teachers. The reference here in verse 2 to uh, apostles is most likely not a reference to the actual 12 apostles, but more likely to those who were closely, apparently closely associated with them. The Ephesians were really good at smelling out a rat. They could pick out false teaching when they heard it. These guys might have presented themselves nice and pleasant, but the Ephesians were not having any of their teaching. Down in verse 6, we also find out that they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't exactly know what the Nicolaitans were on about, but we do know that the Ephesians were wise enough to discern their behavior as well. So this was a church whose doctrine we would call orthodox. They were on the ball. They were right. And in verse 3, Jesus says they were also enduring patiently. Whatever trial they were going through as a church, they were persevering for Jesus' name's sake. Here in verse 2 and 3, we've actually got a nice assessment from Jesus that this is a church that was doing well. They were going well. But they have a critical flaw in verse 4. Read with me again verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. This is a critical flaw. So critical that if they did not address it, then Jesus warns in verse 5 that he will come and remove their lampstand. He will remove the church. It will cease to exist. So what was this critical flaw? What what does it mean that they abandoned the love that they had at first? Unfortunately, I think in this passage, what was clear for Ephesus is probably a little bit vague for us. Uh, he, Paul, uh, not Paul, uh, John doesn't go on into further detail. Jesus doesn't give any particular further detail of it in verse 4. Other letters in the New Testament, like the book of Ephesians, don't shed that much exact light on what this could be either. So we've got to make an educated guess as to what this could be. And there are generally two positions on what this first love they had abandoned was. Now, a lot of commentators suggest that the first love that they had abandoned was their love of God and Jesus. Uh, Jesus, God and his son, who um, are, are to be the first love and priority in a Christian's life. We heard that over and over again in the Gospel of Luke recently. I think there's a big reason, however, that I don't think, I'm not overly convinced that this is the love that they had abandoned. See, if they had lost their love for God, then it makes less sense for them to be patiently enduring for Jesus' name's sake in verse 3. It makes more sense, I think, that their love of God and Jesus and the gospel, their orthodoxy, was grounded in a desire to honor Jesus. So maybe I don't think it was a love for God and Jesus that they had abandoned. I think, though, that it it seems more likely that what they had abandoned was their love for each other. You can see that in the relationship between orthodoxy and love in Ephesians 4 that we read out earlier. The basic movement in that short passage from Paul is that Jesus gifts to his church apostles and pastors and teachers to equip believers so that they'd be unified in their understanding of Jesus and that they would be mature in their doctrine and faith and that this maturity was then meant to flow onto each other through their words and encouragement and their love. To love each other in the New Testament is to care for each other. We care for each other's physical needs and spiritual needs. 
Right? We love each other by speaking God's words to each other. We do that by sharing what we've been reading in the Scriptures and with each other and sharing encouragements that we've personally felt, encouraging others in, the way that we, in what they are reading. We do that by bouncing off what we hear in the sermons each Sunday, asking each other what we found encouraging or challenging. We love each other by noticing the physical needs of each other when someone is injured, like Pastor Ben's wife, her faith, or when someone has a new baby. We, we jump up quickly and work out how we might serve them and their families. We, we notice when someone needs help and we jump to serve along with them. We love each other by caring for those who are not well. We metaphorically walk with them patiently through their dark hours. We persevere with them patiently. We do that as we keep pointing that unwell person back to our gospel hope in Jesus. You cannot read your New Testament and then not bump into some instruction on how we are meant to be loving and serving each other. But by the time John was writing to Ephesus, it seems that this church had matured in its doctrine but they had begun to lose their, lose their love for each other. They had fallen out of love with each other. Now they were left... They, the word abandon says that they once had it, they, maybe even they cherished it, but they kind of put it aside, they had let it go, and they had walked away. Now they were left with a loveless orthodoxy. And if they didn't fall back in love with each other then Jesus was going to break up with them. He would remove their church from history. How exposing must this have been for the Ephesians? Jesus has assessed them, and while they, they praise for their endurance and discernment, they've got a critical problem, abandoning their first love, which is life-threatening. Jesus warns that if they don't do anything about this, if they fail to address this problem, he would remove their lampstand. He would shut the church down. What a dramatic warning. And what are they to do with that? How are they to respond to that? Well, their first response in verse 5 is to remember. Remember from where they have fallen. To remember is, is to take time, to reflect, to be still, retrace their steps. And when we sin and we feel that resulting guilt and shame, what's the first thing that we want to do? What's the first action that we want? We want to feel that we want to move from that pain and that, that guilt and that shame, and we want to move to repentance and faith quickly. We want to, the joy of that, the gospel to fill our lives again. And yes, maybe we need to reconcile with the others that we've heard, but notice that Jesus says here, slow down. Part of remembering is to think through the journey of the fall. If the issue is that they had lost their love for each other, then it wasn't as though one Sunday, the, you know, last week, they had come to church and they were fully excited and they were looking forward to catching up with people. They were looking at each other going, oh, let me pray for you, let me love you, how can I serve you this week? And then next week they came to church and went, I've had enough of that now. Okay, time to move on from all that kind of stuff. Time to dig into the meaty stuff of doctrine now. It wasn't as though there was that kind of movement and shift overnight. Falling out of love with each other didn't happen overnight. So what was the journey down? Now, we're not exactly told, but I think we can take some educated guesses and maybe hold a mirror to ourselves and ask whether or not our church is struggling with this as well. 
I think the first step is not that they suddenly hated each other or that they were cold to each other. I think the first step towards lovelessness is to assume that you love each other. And why is that a big danger? When you assume that you love each other, you stop expressing it. You stop making it clear. If, I, if it doesn't need to be said, why say it at all? If, if we assume that we love each other, then I'm less likely to express my affection and my love for you. Have we started at Esley Church to assume our love for each other? I wonder if this is the path that we have started down. In my hands, I hold a very valuable document. It is the missions, values, and vision of SLE Church that we finalized at the end of 2019 and continue to use to guide our church and our principles as we head forward. And I noticed in this document that the word love only appears once. I, I glanced over this quite a few times, and I only picked it up when I did a PDF search because it's so hard to find. Now, I'm encouraged that the word love is in the context of our gospel unity, but it's so small, it can be very easy to miss. You know, in, a, in one of our key documents of our church, a, a document that we, in which we poured our hearts in and expressed to say, this is who we are, the word love sneak, just sneaks in. We assume our love for each other, we can begin very quickly to forget to actually express our love and affection for each other. Now from there, I think a number of things happen to Ephesus that we may be needing to pay attention to as well. I think they stopped paying attention to each other, to what was happening in each other's lives. Perhaps their own lives got busy and they were just flat out with life. They stopped caring for each other and they had mentally checked out. Over time, it got harder to get back into older habits of love and it was just easier to do your own thing. Now, over the past year during the global pandemic, uh, which has been brought about by COVID-19, many lives have been lost and it's a tragedy. But there has been kind of one beautiful silver lining for SLE Church, for our church. Our church at home groups that so many have registered to have, been a, have proven to be a wonderful place of growing deep relationships and loving and serving each other. And so thankful to hear that many of our groups are experiencing this renewed sense of what it means to love each other. But I know that there are some who have remained unconnected to this. They would much prefer to live stream at home by themselves. And maybe that's you right now watching the live stream. You're watching it with no one else around you. Have you found it easier to stop paying attention to the people in our church? and those you're meant to be in relationship with? To just do your own thing? Are you beginning to show signs that you're losing your first love? Maybe in Ephesus, their church gatherings were getting bigger and so new relationships were harder to build. It was much easier to just stick with the friends that they knew longer instead of, and instead of older Christians looking out for newer and younger Christians or newcomers, uh, well, this church is getting so big, this group is getting so big, maybe I'll just leave it to them to sort out. Maybe in SLE Church, where our gatherings were getting bigger, it felt like for you that relationships were harder to build, so it's just much easier to stick with the friends and family that you've known for longer. 
It's hard work to get to know some new faces. It's much easier to just stay in your small group. But is that a picture of loving each other? Maybe at Ephesus, they probably started using each other rather than loving and serving each other. Relationships became functional. I spoke to you only when I needed something. So Daniel was the church treasurer. Only speak to him about the finances of church. Winnie was, our, Winnie was the church administrator. Only speak to Winnie when you needed something to happen in church. Another person was a big financial donor. Only speak to them when you needed finances for an event. I'm sure there may have been other factors and circumstances involved, but the point is that failing, falling from where you once were doesn't happen overnight. It's so often gradual and an easy slope headed down, soft underfoot, that if we were not paying attention was easy, is easy to miss. Because here they were now, in a place of flat affection for each other. Where they were now and where they had come from in the past, that's what Jesus wants them to remember. So Jesus says to them, slow down. Remember from where you have fallen. I wonder if some of us in Nestle Church need to slow down and do some soul-searching of our own and ask if we are on a journey of losing our love for each other, are we assuming our love for each other? Have we stopped caring for each other? Are we just happy to do our own thing? Are we keeping to our own small circle of friends? What happens if we find ourselves saying yes to any of these questions? Verse 5, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember not just the journey out of love, but also remember that starting place. Right? For Ephesus, it was that place that, that, that where church was alive and bustling. Do you remember that time? It was their, their first love, where was their love for each other? When if, then Jesus asking the Ephesians, if, if their love at first was their love for each other, Jesus asking the Ephesians to think back. Think back to when they first heard the gospel, that excitement, that energy that they had. When they turned from God, the God's of their culture and their day, when they turned away from them and they turned to faith in Jesus alone, how everything became totally different. Remember that first day that you walked into the gathering of church for the first time. Remember how you saw everyone. Remember how each new person you met was an exciting chance and opportunity to hear how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember in those early days how you couldn't wait to go to church again, to meet with these other Christians, to be with them, to love them, to serve them. Remember how that felt, that excitement, that energy, that love and enthusiasm you had for each other. Remember that and recapture it. Repent of your flat affection that you have for each other now. Repent of those actions that might have led to this place, assuming your love for each other, using each other, neglecting each other. Repent of those things. Turn away from this present state and turn towards living for Jesus again as you love others. Now, this isn't about living in the past glory days of the church when things were better. This is about getting back to, be, to basic, the basic biblical command of Jesus, not just here in Revelation 2, but also in the Gospel of John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
They loved God. It seemed evident in their perseverance in His name, in their endurance, in their discernment of false apostles and teachers. But if they failed to recapture their love for one another, all of that orthodoxy would be useless. So what did it look like for them to return to a place of loving others more? Again, the passage itself is silent. It seems to be just a general call to repentance. But in some ways, that is helpful because Jesus is not restricting how they might go about loving each other. And he doesn't do that for us as well. Now, there are some general guiding principles. We love each other, not just by feeling good things to each other, although I think it's important, but we love each other by, in the New Testament by building each other up, encouraging each other, welcoming each other, showing hospitality, especially to those who are strangers and new. The call here is simple. Remember that place from where you fell. Remember the love you once had for each other and recapture that again today. Turn away from your loveless orthodoxy and return to that passionate love and care for each other. The final application is to re-believe. Re-believe because it starts with the Nara and I'm a preacher and I'm trying to make this memorable. The idea here is to hear Jesus and to believe his word, or in this case, to re-believe. Because what Jesus promises right at the end of our passage is not new, but they are to reacquaint themselves with these promises. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is speaking to the one who will conquer. Now, the word conquer, interestingly, is the Greek word nikao or Nike or something like that, which we, the brand Nike gets its name. So we could have easily have just called this sermon series, Just Do It, right? Um, the, to conquer is to have victory. Victory, in this case, not over persecution and tribulation and trials, but over the church's own sinful attitude of not loving each other. Conquering is long and hard work. You have, you have not conquered the enemy until he, the enemy is defeated, dead or waving a white handkerchief in surrender. And if the enemy is in, our, is in our indwelling sin, which causes us to lose our love for each other, well, then I wouldn't trust in total victory over that sin until I was dead three days in the grave, which means that to conquer this sin of lovelessness is long and hard work. It's like that for all of our sins, individually and as a church, as we'll see over the coming weeks. Conquering is hard and long work. Jesus is talking to the one who conquers, to fight fight hard, to the one who fights hard to get the victory in the end. Again, let me say it again, that's hard work. Let's be honest, some of us are not fans of this kind of hard work. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, drops this bomb in an early chapter. Sometimes we would rather die for Jesus than live for him. It's easy to die for Jesus. It's, it's a lot harder to live for him. Conquering may mean dying for Jesus, but for most of us, it means we are called to live for him, and that's hard work. Living for him in this passage means conquering that sin of lovelessness. And to to those who conquer, Jesus offers a promise, access to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise with God. Now, this leads to a good question. How how does this 
reward connect with the issue and the call to repent? How does this reward compel and empower repenting and loving each other? So think about what's being promised. He's promising the tree of life. Think back to when the tree of life is first introduced in the Bible. Right? It's right there at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. The tree was where fellowship with God happened. God provided the tree and its fruit so that man would live eternally with him. And so the tree of life represents eternal life with God. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the Garden of Eden? And God placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden cherubim, fierce-looking angels, with a flaming sword, uh, swiping which way and left. Uh, And remember what they were guarding. They were not just guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden, but they were guarding the way to the tree of life. So here's the thing. If you wanted to go back to the tree, you needed to go under the sword. If you wanted eternal life again and wanted a relationship with God, you needed to go under that sword of the cherubim. But that would mean your death, and then your death would mean eternal separation from God. Basic. So the gospel, however, reminds us that we can go back. Because Jesus went under the sword on our behalf, his life for ours. The defenses that stopped us from gaining access to God are now gone. And by trust and faith in Jesus alone, we have unfettered access, personal access to God the Father. Now, what does this have to do with conquering their lovelessness? How do these ideas connect? Remember that eternal life with God is also eternal life with your brother. If you do not love your brother now, why would you want to spend eternity with them? But if you do love them, if you, if you work hard at your relationships and friendships at church, then eternity with them and with God is promised. But if you do not love your brother, if you continue on this path of lovelessness, then it ultimately reveals that you do not love God. As much as I think this passage is about their love for each other, John elsewhere says that love for each other is rooted ultimately in love for God. Here's what he says. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love can be hard and awkward at times, but the more you work at it, the more you grow in it, and the more the gospel shows that it is true in our lives. And One day in paradise, we will be freed from all the baggage of our sin and anger and hurts, and we will love each other truly. But don't hold on to that false idea that it's okay to not love someone now. Because one day in the future, we'll all be perfect and we can just love each other then. Because that's not how living for Jesus works now. If we are truly living with Jesus as our king, then we will be doing the hard work and sometimes awkward job of loving each other as he first loved us. Remember from where you are fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Re-believe that Jesus offers eternal life. Conquer loveless orthodoxy and you'll receive it. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken through your Son to us this morning. We thank you that even in this difficult word to hear, you've warned us of our great need to love you and to love each other. We ask, Father, that you'll help us to do that. While we may be a church that is strong in the word, help us to also be a church and where people say of SLE, yes, it is strong in the word and they so love each other. Lord Jesus, please empower us to do this. Please do not take the lampstand of our church away. We ask this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.